Hooked on Health, a Go Loud original. Welcome along to episode three of the Hooked on Health podcast with Eric Donovan. I'm Willow Callahan from Off the Ball on this Go Loud original. Eric Donovan is here with me. Eric, how are you getting on this week? Oh, good. Well, how's things? Yeah, I'm really good, Eric. I think probably helped a little bit by the good weather we're having here in the middle of the summer and that now we've got two podcasts in the pocket. They've been received really well so far. Ushi McConville, Mary Holgrain. They're available to listen back for anyone who's joining us late here on episode three. We're a month out now from the Tokyo Olympics. Really exciting time for anyone who's a sports nerd like me. Probably learning a little bit about some sports you've neglected over the last four years, or in the case of these games, five years. But it means it's a great time for you to pick a guest from the world of track and field. And you've picked a really special one from an Irish context this week. I remember watching David Gillick fondly when he won European gold medals in the 400 metres at the European Indoors back in 2005 and 2007. They were both achieved before he'd even reached the age of 24. So there's that feeling that when he went particularly to Beijing in 2008, many people thought maybe he wouldn't peak until London 2012. But the hype and expectation about Gillick going to Beijing in 08 was crazy. And I think as we're probably going to hear, it didn't really play out in the way that he would have hoped he had a few injuries then in his late 20s is my memory of his career he hung up his spikes what felt way too young kind of late 20s early 30s but he's reinvented himself in retirement and people will have watched him on tv winning celebrity masterchef and then he became a trackside reporter and one of the best around an analyst for rt's athletics coverage and he's going to be heading over to tokyo in a few weeks time to be there to lend his expertise on the tv I think David Gillick this week, Eric, a really interesting person you've picked. He's a very interesting guest, Will. And, um, you know, something that's very interesting about David Gillick as well is that, like, he wasn't um, this young running prodigy. You know, he, like, in many cases, major medal winners are people who have medaled at uh, schoolboy or schoolgirl level or junior or youth level or the underage level coming through. But David Gillick wasn't one of them. He was a late bloomer. You know, he never gave up. He never stopped trying. And then when he got to the senior level, you know, he performed and, 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 you know, stood on top of the podium twice in two European championships. And, you know, he's the, he's the, he's the record holder in, in Ireland as well, over 400 meters indoor and outdoor. So, um, but like that, you know, he, what's very interesting about, about David is is that he has he's 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 so articulate and eloquent in how he um in how he conveys his story and describes his story his, his life story and about how he at points in his life felt that he was ill-equipped to deal with life after sport because of the you know he not reaching the even though like two times European champion is not just to turn your nose up at like but by his own uh, high standards. He felt like, you know, he didn't achieve um, what he really wanted to achieve, like, you know, um, or maybe felt that uh, that he came in a bit under par or whatever. I certainly wouldn't feel like that. But And then he felt ill-equipped to deal with life after sport. So, and he struggled with that. He struggled with trying to make that transition from retiring so young and ha- knowing what you're doing from one end of the day to the next for years and years. And then suddenly you're left to your own devices to create your own pathway, create your own plan. He really struggled with that. And he talks about it and he speaks so honestly about that and, uh, and the strategies and the tips that he used to kind of, to, 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 to get out of that and to get his life back on track. But such an interesting guy. Something I always find intriguing too, is that like, and I'm going to keep this on the athlete example here to keep it on the same track, so to speak, uh, no pun intended as David Gillick is that, you get someone, say, like Kieran McGeehan, who, even as a junior athlete, is already been called the next Sonia O'Sullivan, and she's challenging Sonia O'Sullivan's records. So the expectation always is that Kieran McGeehan, once she kind of grows into her body and gets a little bit older, she's naturally going to be a senior star. It's almost like you look into the crystal ball as a teen, and it's guaranteed that she's going to be great. I always have got huge respect for grafters too, you know, like Gillick, who comes in at a time when the 400 metres in Ireland was very, very competitive too. 
and he makes himself the best athlete at that distance within the country. And he continues to work hard and work hard and work hard. And while he may not have been the stellar teenage athlete, not too dissimilar to lads who don't make, say, their minor team or women who don't make their minor team, but then go on to be really good players when they get older. There's a lot to admire in someone who puts that kind of work and graft in as well, Eric. Hugely. Um, but that's what, you know, David Gillick is. You know, he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a high achiever. He's a grafter and he's a resilient individual who found a way, who always found a way and who always tried to strive. To, he always strived to to be better than he was yesterday. And um, he, it's an interesting chat. You know, he gives so many good insights and reasonings behind how things were and, and, and how things are and, and what he's doing today in the area of mental health and well-being as well. And, and, and in the corporate world as well, he's using his, at one point he, he felt that like, you know, that, all of his life experiences through running and everything wasn't really much of much use to him. But now he realizes that they're an incredible uh, asset to him because he's using them now to inspire other people. Like the, the, the tools and the skills that you learn through sport are very transferable into other areas of life. And um, that's what he's doing today. We're going to listen to your chat now in a moment with him, but I'm just wondering from your perspective, because in some ways, David retired from one career and then re-emerged and went a different way. You retired from boxing and then decided to go back into it. Like, given that you also retired from a sport at a fairly young age, like you're talking not too different here, 27 versus about 30, how did you find that kind of readjustment after sport? Because I'd imagine no different to David. You have spent so many years knowing that it's right, I'm getting my nutrition and training right so that I'm peaking to hit these events and this is what I want to achieve and everything is laid out and your coach is a huge part in planning what you're going to do to then all of that stopping and the bright lights stopping. Was that actually a difficult adjustment for you as well, Eric? Yeah, I suppose it was quite difficult, but I knew I had to do something to bring a bit more security to my future because, you know, boxing, well, at the level that I was at, um, was precarious enough, you know, like you had to keep, reaching the highest standard on the world stage in order to continue reaching the criteria for your funding from the sports council, et cetera. So huge pressures. And, you know, suddenly at 27, I wasn't number one anymore and I wasn't getting funded by Sport Ireland anymore. And I didn't have any education. I didn't have any work experience. And I had two young kids and I was like, well, what am I going to, how am I going to, how am I going to provide for, for them, for me, for, you know, so that was the point where I went back into education and, as a mature student and and luckily enough for me that was a good thing because I felt like I was able to kind of um, develop in different areas of my life and you know not just from the sporting side but the academic side and and build a bit more knowledge and and learn a different trade you know you know I went into the area of counseling psychotherapy and and uh, and of course then I came back into boxing but I feel like I'm boxing better today because of that break and because of what I've learned in that break, because I've learned more, I've learned about myself in, di in a different way, in a different aspect, you know, uh, I grew and developed. Uh, and now I know that I'm, the outcome of a fight is not going to be the, the be all and end all. And I don't have this unnecessary pressures on me where boxing is everything. It's not everything, you know, but now I'm able to, box with a little bit more security knowing that whatever happens I'm going to be all right and then you can express yourself freely and go and enjoy and when you enjoy it when you enjoy doing what you're doing you know you tend to operate at the optimum level well let's hear your conversation then with David Gillick the former Irish celebrity MasterChef winner also a three-time European medalist this is what happened when David sat down with Eric So I'm delighted to introduce my next guest. I've been a huge fan of his, both on the track and off. There's a clue in that. He's a two times European champion, 2008 Olympian, national record holder over 400 meters, both indoor and outdoor. He's written two best-selling books. He's won the Celebrity MasterChef. The list goes on and on. It's David Gillick. David, welcome to the show. How are you? 
Cheers, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Um, great to chat to you and uh, looking forward to this because I know you'll, uh, you'll bring me places now where a lot of people wouldn't go. So uh, looking forward to chatting to you. Yeah, once we're walking though, because if we're running, you leave me behind. Well, I don't know at the moment now. I'm a bit recovering. I'm not as fast as I once was either, unfortunately. Suppose just to start off, David, I like to check in with people and just see where they're at at the moment because it is difficult out there. I'm just wondering, how's life for you at the minute? Yeah, look, it is, and I'm no different. You know, it's uh, we've had our ups and downs over the last like year. You know, it, it's crazy to even say a year, but you know, I work for myself. My wife works. We've got two small kids. Um, Oscar, who's just gone five. Olivia's two and a half. Um, you know what I mean? There's just so much change and uncertainty. And I've had good days. I've I've had uh, bad days. But I think by this stage now, we've kind of we've managed to, I suppose, get into a routine. You know, and I think that's that's kind of key. Like and like I said, like it's, it's always changing. And I think with all that uncertainty, you're always kind of looking for when things will go back to normal. But, you know, I think it's, it's a new world we live in. And maybe the normal routine that we once had is, is always going to change going forward. But I think family, you know, they're all well. Um, I think that's the positives. My, my parents and, you know, my immediate family are all keeping well. And um, we're just kind of trying to find our way through this. Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? When we put things into perspective you know we just want the people around us our loved ones to be to be well and to be healthy and that's the most important thing we will get through this I notice you're sporting a bit of a band-aid there at the minute um you're telling me you had a bit of a procedure recently yeah unfortunately like when I retired from athletics well I actually hated sport for a period of time but I, I grew up playing a bit of GAA for my local club Ballantyre and I went back and played with them and uh, about two years ago, I actually ru- ruptured a pec muscle. Um, so my pectoralis muscle, uh, give it its full title. Uh, and I didn't do anything about it. Um, and then over time, it wasn't really kind of getting any better and it was causing a bit of issues. So um, I kind of decided now's the time to go and get it reattached. So I did that. Um, and it's slowly coming back. You know, I'm only, I'm only out of kind of surgery. But um, yeah, it's, it, do you know what it is? It's like, it's always the way in life. I think you take, you take certain things for granted, you know, and, you know, I, I'd be kind of an active person. I, I, I'd like to get outside and, and all the rest of it. And I think when you can't do something that you love to do, um, you know, you can get a little bit frustrated, but, you know, it, it's important for my long-term health that uh, I, I, I had it fixed and, and, and kind of looked after. So, yeah, um, like I said, I'm not as fast as I once was and I'm not really doing a whole lot of running now, but we'll get there. Yeah, well, we wish you a speedy recovery with that. I noticed recently you were getting behind a, a Team Ireland campaign online uh, called Don't Scroll By. Do you, want to, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so I'm involved with the Olympic Federation Athletes Commission. And the commission was set up uh, off the back of Rio 2016 when there was an awful lot of change in terms of the Olympic movement in Ireland. And um, one of the key things was that we, we really wanted the, the athletes' voice to be heard. And thankfully, the powers that be, um, Sarah Keane and... and uh, people in the now OFI really respected that. So the Athletes Commission was set up. And what we kind of learned over the last number of years was by just engaging with the athletes, engaging with like Olympic athletes, you know, what were their concerns? What were their issues? And one of them was around uh, racism, discrimination and hate speech. And I suppose, you know, when we look at society in Ireland, it's getting more and more diverse and our teams that represent our country are more and more diverse. And there was an issue about two years ago with a young athlete competing in the European Youth Olympics and represented Ireland very, very well. And on social media, there was, uh, you know, posts about uh, the success of the athlete. And some of the comments, which um, were very surprising, majority were were positive, don't get me wrong, but there was quite a lot that they didn't critique or, um, you know, analyse the athlete's performance. They actually were commenting on the colour of their skin. And I think that was a real eye-opener to where we are as, as a nation, as a society. And, you know, unfortunately, racism is present. And um, when we saw these comments, we were like, you know, this is a young athlete. We don't want that athlete seen and we don't want friends and family. And that's where we said, like, well, what can we do? What are the things that we could do now? And people live on social media. Um, it's part and parcel of today's life. And we just kind of said, well, you know, if people are on it and they see something that they don't like, 
do something about it. And that's where don't scroll by, you know, uh, delete it, ban and report. That's what we're asking people to do. So if there is a comment that you don't think is right, well, do something about it because, you know, and look, you, you're a sports person as well. You know, when you put yourself out there, you're going to get people that are going to criticize your performance and tell you that you could have done things better. But you know what? It's unfair then to, to criticize the way they talk, the way they look, um, the color of the skin. That's not what it's all about. So that's the main reason that... Um, I've been involved in it. And to be fair, we're getting great support. And I think it's a really, really well worth campaign that everybody can can actually do something about. Yeah, I, I think it's a great campaign. Um, we can all play our part. There's absolutely no doubt about that. You know what's sad? Like that in this day and age, we're still dealing with this level of racism, hatred and discrimination. And it can be so detrimental for anybody. But to a young athlete who is out there just trying their best... And giving it the role, it could really just knock their confidence and, and could change their whole career. It can change a career. And like, you know, it, it's, I suppose, like in my time and, and there was no social media, you know what I mean? So it was very much like, you know, there was no comments and things like that. The only thing would be in the paper or something like that. But, you know, nowadays, social media, particularly for young people, like it, it's, it's online, it's cyberbullying. And bullying, mm. when I was growing up, took place in the playground where teachers or parents could, could spot it. They could see something and maybe do something about it. But mm. when it's online, it's almost hidden. You know, people are hiding behind keyboards yeah. and just writing comments in. There's nobody's rep- reprimanded in, on, on, on the, the other side of it. So, you know, it's just creating awareness of where we are at and what is going on and, you know, trying to do something about it. Have you any personal experiences of having to deal with online bullying or abuse or overcoming anything like that? No, like, I think to be honest with you, like, I've never had um, racist comments or discrimination about the way I look or the way I speak or anything like that. Like, obviously, um, you know, I've trained with athletes that would come from mixed heritage backgrounds um, and things. And I have seen it from from their perspective. But personally, no, I haven't. The only thing would be like comments about my performances and things like that, which, you know, let it be said, like we all try and be really tough. We all try and say it's water off a duck's back, you know, and we don't read our own press, but we do, you know, you see, you read articles about how you performed. And if you scroll down a little bit further, that's where you see comments. And look, I'll be, I'm thankful and I'm grateful that the majority have been positive, but it could just be one. And in my career, yeah, there has been one or two comments that have really kind of got to me and annoyed me and, you know, cut me deep certain days when you, you, you might be coming off the back of a poor championship or a poor performance. And, you know, it's those kind of like single comments that tend to kind of just stick into you a little bit more. And I think anyone who's at a performance or at a level of performance, be it TV, be it business, be it sport, you know, when you, when you kind of have the courage to put yourself out there, it does come with the territory a little bit. And um, yeah, like some people just want to have a pop at you for the sake of it, which, you know, it's probably there's no need for, but it's unfortunately where we are. Yeah, it's one of those sad things about social media. Um, and it's a pity because social media has great potential, you know, to connect people and unite people. And But unfortunately, that is one of those ugly features and I don't like it. Um, but you just reminded me of one of, of a time uh, back in my life, actually, back in 2010, when I won a European bronze medal in Moscow. And it was a huge achievement for me, massive achievement. Like it took me years and years to win this medal. And I'd done an interview after winning the medal. And when I got back home, I, I, I looked at the interview again and there was a few comments underneath. And one of the comments was taking the mick out of my accent, how I spoke, how I didn't pronounce certain letters and everything when I spoke. And now suddenly... I wasn't thinking about my medal and my great achievement and I was thinking about how to reply to this person, how to reply to this individual and I wrote out so many replies and I deleted them and then I wrote them out again in a different way and I, I deleted them and then, it, then I just kind of caught myself in the act and I was like, Eric, what are you doing? And I just stopped. I just stopped there and then. But isn't, isn't it sad though? Like, you know, you, you won a medal and you compete at the highest level. Mm. They're the moments that you should be cherishing and should be enjoying. But yet, there was a comment that was stuck in the forefront of your mind. And we've seen that, like, you know, we've seen that with some of our younger athletes, with our athletes that in certain circumstances, they're a bit nervous to represent the country for the fear of the repercussion as to the way they speak or their heritage or the color of the skin. And 
like that's not right. That is absolutely not right. So you know, and you know, it's not just Olympic sports. It's rugby. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, soccer. It's GAA. You know, we're seeing this across the board. And unfortunately, it's the ugly byproduct of social media. Because let's be honest, we're not telling asking people to get off social media. It's part of life now. You know, it's just it's the part of the way we live. Kids are growing up with social media. So you know, it's all about how we can just make it better. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Um, look, it's a great campaign. Uh, that's the Don't Scroll By campaign from Team Ireland. Can you take me back to the start of your career? I mean, like you've had a, such a fantastic career and so much success. But I don't think, now, and I could be wrong, did, did you have any international success as a juvenile or underage when you're coming through? No, you didn't, I wasn't. That kind of just proves my initial thought. Um, because most for most athletes international athletes successful ones on the world stage let's say whether they're olympic european or world medalists a lot of them would have had international success coming through as juveniles as underage or schoolboy or schoolgirl but for you you didn't have that kind of you never collected medals at that level but you still never gave up on yourself and you had that belief and the resilience that to keep going and to think that one day, you know, I'm going to get there. And then you achieved and reached the pinnacle and got to the very, very top in your senior career. And I think there's great lessons and learnings in that for everybody. But I'm sure you had your doubts along the way too. Yeah, God, geez, did I ever doubt? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, probably like... I think everyone has their doubts. It's, it's what you do with them and how you control them. Um, you know, I participated in athletics. I did um, GA. I did soccer growing up. Um, yeah, like, you, I, I, was, I was the fastest in my class. Like, that was probably where it all kind of started and you win your school sports day. But I never made any international, like, juvenile teams or, or anything like that. And I just, like, people always ask me that question, like, you know, how, why did you continue? I think I just enjoyed it. I think like I was just happy doing it and I just enjoyed it. And as I got a little bit older, like, you know, my, my latter teenage years, I began to kind of see that I was improving. And I think this is the, the key thing when you're growing up, like we're all grown at different rates. We're all grown at, you know, and you know, you're hitting puberty at different times of your life where other people might be going a bit earlier, sort of grown, they're bigger, they're faster, all that sort of stuff. But I just enjoyed running and, probably I was a part of a team, even in athletics, like my school, St. Penilla's had a good tradition of cross country running. And I was just like a member of that team. I didn't score on the team. There were six on the team, four to score. I was always fifth or sixth, but I enjoyed it. And um, I got like, I suppose when I got a little bit older, maybe like fifth year, I had a bit of a break. I, I, I won a national medal um, and that gave me huge confidence. And then it was like kind of junior. I didn't make the team for the World Juniors in Jamaica, but I got sent as part of a relay team. And that was just a great experience. You know, Jamaica, Kingston, Usain Bolt, all of this. And that was really the catalyst for me to go, oh, do you know what? I want more of this. Like, may- maybe I can, I can improve. So I decided there and then that, right, I was going to become an athlete. And, and even at that age, like, I wasn't really, I wasn't a, a, like a standout talent or anything like in, like, it came quite late. And I was probably, when was I, kind of 19 when, I really focused on athletics. And then um, about two years later, 2005, I got that big breakthrough in the European indoors and I won a medal. And, you know, that was where I suppose I came from, like being completely under the radar to suddenly you win a medal in a sprint event. I think it was like the first medal in about 76 years in a sprint event, you know, because we weren't known as sprinters. And again, that kind of belief. But again, that was a challenging time, Eric, because suddenly I came home and people were like, oh, your man's going to go and win the Olympics and beat the Americans and yeah. all this sort of crack. And then you're kind of going, shit, like, oh my God. Yeah. You know, there's an element of pressure. And I probably didn't deal with that right because it was all brand new. And even, it was probably brand new for our organization, like Athletics Ireland at the time. Did you not believe that you could become a European champion? Like when you got out there, were you just of the mindset that I'm just going to give my best and do my best did you not envisage yourself standing at the top of the podium in the european championships i'll be honest i not that i didn't believe believe myself but it was more about like i never even thought about medals it was very much that that was my first individual championship so i was delighted to kind of get a senior vest and the big thing for me was to you know to run and not like a, a personal best, you know, and that's where I suppose sports can differ. Athletics is very statsy. So you have a number against your name. So for me going into that, it was like, right, here's an opportunity for me to, 
to run fast. And in hindsight, it was probably the best attitude because I just focused on myself. I took it one race at a time. I didn't worry about like the final or the podium or who else to beat. It was like, okay, David, execute your race plan. And that's exactly what I did. I ran well. I got into the final. And again, same sort of thing. Okay, execute your race plan. And then lo and behold, the race unfolded and I found myself crossing the line first. And I think that race then gave me massive belief because there was probably an element where I didn't believe an Irish athlete could compete at that level in a sprint event and win a, win a championship. And it's funny because like I, in my kind of career, there was the likes of Paul Hessian, Dervla Rourke, uh, Joanne Cody, people who actually did go on and excel in sprint events at major championships. And the following year, Derva went on and won a world medal at indoors yeah. and you know we, we've always kind of had the conversation where I think you know we both helped each other in those couple of years where you know she saw me do it and we motivated each other and that's kind of what we're seeing now with the current crop of athletes that are that are running really well you know there's an element of belief and I know you know this from from boxing and even been in kind of the the amateur side of it where you know you have that talent coming through and success breeds success so you know at that time did I believe I was going to get in the podium Probably not. Okay, I'll be honest, probably not. But post that championship, I think we all kind of said, you know what, Irish sprint athletes can be up there with the best of them. We worked off the same philosophy in the Irish high performance boxing team. Um, I mean, we never talked about medals. It was never uh, a discussion. But even though in the back of your mind, the ultimate goal was always to win a medal. Like, how do you, how do you measure world class? You measure world class by medals, you know, winning medals on the at major events on the world stage. So, but it was always drilled into us about the process, one round at a time, one minute at a time, just performance. And in your case, it was the same. You know, you 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 focused on delivering your best performance, and maybe just maybe you might possibly get a personal best. But lo and behold, your best performance brings you across the line in first place. And suddenly you're a European champion and there's great buzz and there's great momentum leading into the Beijing Olympic Games. And look, let's face it, being an Olympian is one of the most prestigious titles that you can have. And unfortunately for me, it's something that eluded me and I never quite got there, but I have to live with it. So not everybody gets there, but, but then the people who do get there, it doesn't always turn out to be the experience that they expected and i heard you speaking before about how good did you were about your olympic experience yeah look i was and i look back at my olympic experience and it was shite and i'll i'll be honest about that you know and it's probably taken me a good couple of years to look back now and go do you know what yeah i am an olympian and i'm very very proud of that i suppose you know when you're in that when you're in that cycle you know and sport is very kind of funny because you're always working towards the next fight the next race the next championship the next olympic games and coming from athletics, like that's the pinnacle of our sport, the Olympic Games. So I suppose, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007, it was all about Beijing. I then qualified very early. I qualified in 07. So I was like, right, I'm going to Olympic Games. I tried to do absolutely everything I, I could, leave no stone unturned. And the result was I probably just stressed myself out. I forgot about that key element of having a bit of fun. You know, being grateful that you can you can train full time and enjoy the process. I started, and that's a key word, and you touched on it as well, taking it round by round, race by race. I started looking a year down the line, Olympics, Olympics, Olympics. Everything was about the Olympics. And as it approached, I was running well, I was in form. Um, but then I noticed things weren't right. I began to feel a little bit more fatigued and just things weren't really the way I thought they would be. Went to Beijing and I didn't run well around the slowest time of the season. Um, and I was absolutely devastated. I was embarrassed. I felt I let an awful lot of people down and that guilt. And, you know, it just, it was, it was a, it was a horrible time. And even funny little things like people will go to Olympics and they come back with a tattoo. I didn't feel I earned a tattoo. I was like, I don't deserve that. And that was the way I spoke to myself. But one of the best things I did was, um, I came back and I was living away at the time. I was over in the UK, came back home to, to Dublin, to Ireland. And, I started going out with my now wife that year, um, Charlotte, and she was English and I wanted to bring her to Ireland. And we went for about a week over to the West Coast. And I always remember like going over to, we were in, on Inishboffin and, you know, you're looking at a very picturesque, gorgeous day, next stop America. 
and we were just talking, you know, and she was kind of saying, oh, like, you know, how do you feel about the, you know, the year that's gone? How do you feel about the year coming up? And I was like, you know what, like, you know, I really need to start enjoying what I'm doing, you know? Yeah, like the Olympics didn't go the way I wanted, but I really need to kind of enjoy the process and enjoy kind of the life as an athlete. And if I want to continue in the sport, I've got to flick that off switch. I've got to allow myself to, you know, just have, you know, when I'm on, I'm on, when I'm off, I'm off. And that was really the catalyst going into 2009. And that turned out to be my best year, you know, 09. And then obviously kind of having a good couple of years. And, you know, it was actually very recent, about two years ago, um, it was my birthday and Charlotte went and got me a voucher for a, a tattoo parlor here in Dublin. And she was like, you know what? Like, you deserve to go get those Olympic rings. That's what I did. <laughs> so it took me many years to go and get them. But now I look at the rings and I think, you know what? It, it inspires me. It brings me back to all the things that I've done in order to become an Olympian. And, and now being a dad and having kids myself, I want that to inspire them. And I think that's what it's all about. So I do right now look back um, and I'm proud that the process that everything went in about becoming an Olympian because it's something that as a little kid, I dreamt of. It wasn't about personal best or records. It was like, you know what? I want to become an Olympian. Um, and that's what it was about. That was it. So yeah, like it's, it's great. It didn't go well, but I learned. I learned from it. And I wasn't afraid to debrief and ask myself some real critical questions uh, and learn from it and move forward. I'm delighted to hear you got the Olympic rings tattooed on your body afterwards. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because it's actually one of the reasons why I was so gutted myself. Um, to not qualify for the Olympic Games was was not being able to get the Olympic rings tattooed on my body. You know, most of my boxing buddies all had the Olympic rings on their arms and their chest and they're going around proudly showing them off and, and rightly so. I mean, the Olympic rings are a powerful symbol, you know, and what they represent and everything. So I'm really glad to hear that you got that done and yeah, you do deserve it. You do deserve to have them. Um, you mentioned a few things there. You know, in the aftermath of the Olympic Games, you seem to hit a really low point. The whole experience didn't go uh, as planned. It wasn't what you expected. You were devastated. Um, you felt embarrassed and, you know, you put yourself down. You felt like you let people down. And then you talk about making a bit of a transition, a bit of a change uh, to almost changing the perspective, changing the lens you're looking through and picking yourself up from that low point and turning it around and having a great year in 2009. So... I mean, that just doesn't happen overnight. How do you make that change and that transition? Or what kind of supports or people helped you with that? Well, you hit the nail on the head there. It was people. And I think, you know, when you look at, say, athletics and you watch Olympics or world champs and you see an individual running, throwing, walking, you know, jumping in an Olympic stadium or, or a major championships, um, the key thing for me was that I... I invested time into the key people around me. I came back and I was, I was gutted, I was devastated. But, you know, what I did was I rang my coach, and I mean coaches, I had an SSC coach, I had a nutritionist, I had my own track coach. And we literally one day went out for a bite to eat. And obviously the topic of conversation was like, you know, what happens, right? How can we improve? And I think that was the key because I think people saw a bit of resilience in me that, you know what, I wasn't just going to like keel over here. It was very much all right, what worked well? What were the little things that we could have done better? And um, where are we going from here? And, and that's what it was. And I think we, we, like, I brought that level of communication to the group over the next couple of weeks and months. And we really began to like, get everyone on the same page. So again, constant communication about, okay, well, what was it doing you know, on the track and how that related to every, everything else? Um, and I think that was, that was probably the, the key moment, you know, it was like, okay, you know, we all believe that I could have, I could run 44 seconds and be up there um, with some of the best athletes in the world. But, you know, it was about how we were going to do it. So, you know, there, it, it, there's a great quote where a goal without a plan is just a wish. And it was probably times earlier in my career that I was just wishing I was going to run 44 and make finals and do this. Whereas I needed to put it into practice. I needed to focus on the actual tangible KPIs, the simple things that I could do and that I could improve upon. And I'm talking about simple things like, you know, going to bed an hour earlier, making sure that I was getting good, adequate rest, making sure that I was hydrating myself, having a breakfast every day, you know, simple things like that. So it wasn't a big almighty goal. It was like these little, little 1%. If I can do those, well, you know what? then you're focusing really on the process and everybody's invested in that. But I think the key thing was that I looked at kind of like, okay, well, 
is there anyone I need to bring into this like Team Gillick? Was there any anyone that had like um, experience or value in different areas that we might have overlooked? And you know that was a key element to it. But also, I had to be really honest with myself, and I had to say, Do you know what, I need to allow myself to enjoy this. I need to switch off. And what I learned was that if I'm happy off the track, I'm happy on the track. So my living situation, you know, who was I living with? Did I need to get out of sharing accommodation? And simple things like that that maybe we don't focus on. We focus on our job. We focus on hitting our targets. We focus on our sport. But you know what? It's that holistic approach to it. And that's something that I really learned going into 2009. Well, it's all those little 1%, isn't it? When they're all put together and added up, they make all the difference in the grand scheme of things. Um, you retired quite young. And I know that injuries and just the body take, you know, the toll on the body would have influenced that decision to retire i'm wondering what was it like for you post career after sport um going back out into the normal day-to-day world was like i mean from the outside it appeared like that was a pretty smooth transition because i would have been watching you on the on, on my tv screen winning celebrity master chef and 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 writing best-selling books um uh, and i'm just curious to know was it as smooth as it appeared to be or was there a huge void left in your life oh like eric there was a massive void like and it was probably something i never ever kind of expected or even kind of was was aware of i i retired at 30 after having probably about two to three seasons of really bad injuries and you know it just got to the point where i felt i was ready to move on and i felt i could at the moment but what i realized was that i, I was struggling and I didn't, like, I suppose I just went straight away from sport. I was like, I want nothing to do with this. I was resentful to what had happened, you know, in terms of injuries. And I, I, I hated athletics. I hated sport because I felt now it put me in the situation I was in. And that wasn't a good situation. It wasn't a good environment. My, like, my mental health began to deteriorate because I had no routine, no purpose. I had no get up and go. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And that was really frustrating because I was always determined, motivated. I always knew what I was going to do every day, every week, every month. You know, it was almost like, yes, I'm building towards something. Now I didn't know what I was going to do. I was waking up in the day and in the morning going like, I don't need to be anywhere. And that was just a real negative cycle. And as a result, I suppose when you talk about fulfillment and contentment, I just thought I needed a job. I needed money. I need money. So I put a huge onus on money to be kind of that thing that's going to fulfill me. So I went chasing, I went chasing euros and that was it. And then after a year that I realized not a good thing, right? I'm going to move on to the next job. And then I realized this isn't right. So I crumbled and I've been open and honest about my mental health journey. I, I had di- um, depression. I, I was diagnosed with like anxiety, depression. I had suicidal thoughts. It was just, I just was in, in, in a dark place. So like all those valuable things I'd learned from an athlete, I chucked out the window. Why? I'm not an athlete anymore. I'm not an athlete. That was it. So my identity was just, and I was, a, I was an athlete. And that's all I thought I was good at was running around in over 400 meters, a lap at a track. So, you know, it took me a long time and I got a lot of help before I realized, you know what? Like, you know, I am resilient. Like, look at all the stuff that I've done, the setbacks, how I've overcame them. But I had to go back and remind myself of all these things. And that's where resilience, like, we're hearing a lot of it now. But, like, you know, it's not bought in a shop. But you don't just go in and get it. It's, you're, you know, it's something that you build over time by reminding yourself of everything you've gone through in your life. And we've all had setbacks and, you know, things like that that have gone on. But you've got to remind yourself of how you overcame them. So now, yes. Like even dealing with all the change that's gone on the last year, like I was, I kind of felt at times that I was able to embrace this. I've been here before. I've dealt with change. I've dealt with setbacks. And that's the stuff that kind of helped me get through the last kind of couple of weeks and months and even years. So it took me a while to realize that. It took me a while to realize that, you know, I had the skills, you know? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Loads of identification with you there. And it's great to hear you share that and be honest about your struggles because so many people i'm sure have the same experience and and experience the same issues especially after life of sport you know when you have so much structure and routine and focus every single day every single week knowing what you're doing and then suddenly it's it's gone it's all taken away from you and that's why i struggled in my life when i stepped outside the irish high performance environment because in the environment i excelled and i progressed but outside of that environment I regressed you know I just didn't have the same support systems on the outside as I had on the inside 
But like you, I almost felt ill-equipped to deal with life outside of sport or after when I stepped outside of that environment. And then I realized, you know, that many of the skills, the tools, the strategies that I used in my boxing career are transferable to other areas in life too. And I think that's what you realized. You've come to realize that too. And you've developed a, a business now with a couple of friends called remotewellbeing.ie where you do corporate wellness programs and you share your experiences. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so like I, I kind of started, I suppose, sharing my experiences and, and doing a little bit more in, in the corporate kind of world and very much around wellness, well-being and um, everything from stress management to resilience to food to nutrition and all this sort of crack. And then like it was, it was going very well. And then the, um, COVID hit and so I couldn't go into any corporates. And that's where I was like, OK, well, what can I do? So again, like a tool there was like, well, how, how can I overcome this? It wasn't like, oh, doom and gloom. OK, what can I do? And that's where I kind of had it. Obviously, over the years, built a couple of, you know, um, friendships and got to work with different people. And I kind of thought, well, all right, well, you know, maybe together is stronger and together is better. So I looked around at people that I'd worked with and I thought, you know what, maybe we can come together and offer something a little bit more holistic and do it kind of virtually. So basically, like I had all this kind of knowledge, I suppose, and I just put it on an e-learning platform. And together with other people, we were able to build a program. That's where remote wellbeing kind of started. And now we're running programs in, in, in corporates over a couple of weeks and we're touching on all those areas. Um, and particularly now that people are dealing with that level of anxiety and worry because of the change. And, and that's why kind of remote wellbeing is something that I actually get a big kick out of because I feel like I'm, I'm giving something and I'm offering like a bit of help and experience and, you know, with other people as well, it's, it's holistic and we're looking at all areas of, of wellbeing and wellness. And I think it's, you know, I find it empowering actually, you know, that you can help people because we're all dealing with this in our own different ways. And some days we're positive, some days we're negative, but that's normal. And I think even in terms of my own journey with mental health, like I don't shy away from kind of been open and honest warts and all sure. Like, if anything, it's helping people and it's removing that stigma, particularly from a male perspective, you know, because I think when you come from sports, it's, it's bigger, stronger, faster, you know, show no weakness, but we're human. We're human. So, you know, right now we, um, you know, it's, it's going pretty well. We, we have programs running over periods of weeks with, co with companies and I'm, I'm very kind of happy. I'm very like, I'm enjoying it. And, um, I think that's what it's about, like sharing stories. And I know you do a little bit as well. And like, you know, like that's what it's about. And, you know, whether it's regardless of like the age profile of your audience, you're helping people. And I think by telling stories, it's a great way of learning, great way of learning. Yeah, like there's something really special about real, honest storytelling, isn't there? Like, I just like people giving it to you straight you know i just love to hear high profile people sharing their experiences of struggle of the dark days the setbacks and overcoming that you know it just it, it almost makes you feel like it makes it makes it okay for you to struggle too you know you feel like if they can do it then so can i um but i think there's a huge shift isn't there like with how we speak now and um how we talk like we're going away from that old kind of cliche talking to more real honest authentic speaking and storytelling and i think podcasts and all of these platforms are helping with that we're hearing a lot more we're hearing a lot more honesty we're hearing from a lot more people and a lot more experiences and that's what i'm trying to do with this podcast too to not just talk about the glory days even though they're important as well but to in order to be successful you have to embrace your vulnerabilities as well and your setbacks and the, you know the losses and you know they're all part of the journey i think i think you're right like you know it's real it's uh, authentic but it's also like you, you got to be aware of how people learn and like i was doing an awful lot where you go in you give a talk and you, and you walk out the door and that's the end of it whereas you know it takes time for people to learn and and make change so again by looking at okay yes you're, you're doing live elements to it but People kind of learn in different ways. And I think using technology by, you know, putting the content that you have up on a, a platform that people can go in uh, and use it when it suits them. And particularly now that people are working from home and they're homeschooling, they've got kids and vulnerable people that they're looking after, that, you know, they might be able to make a live webinar, but they can go on then in their own time and get that information and get those stories and, um, 
and all that content. So that's kind of, it's that blended approach, I think, you know, and for me, that's kind of real long-term sustainable change. And that's what it's all about. I've been watching you over the last while there, working for RT, the punditry, the analysis, and especially your work in Rio, in, at the Olympic Games in Rio. And I just thought you were absolutely brilliant. Your your knowledge, your insight, and your ability to communicate with the athletes and the viewers. Um, you know, you, you do a great job there, I must say. Um, I'm just wondering what's your thoughts on the Tokyo Olympics do you think they'll go ahead yeah look it's uh, I appreciate the comments yeah like it's uh, Rio was a great experience to be over there um, and be be on the other side of the track actually as well and kind of see it through a different lens um, yeah look Tokyo um, do I I think it's going to go ahead yeah I do believe it's going to go ahead um, I don't know no, look, spectators probably won't be there. Will media be there? I'm not sure. Uh, I am due to travel, but like we just, we're, we're kind of unsure. Um, the Olympics will go ahead, okay? It's, my only concern is that, you know, I want full fields. I want all athletes that have qualified to go. My worry is that, you know, they could turn around and say, well, we're taking 50% or 30% athletes, you know, just because there's so many involved and you know i think that would be a big shame but i I think it will go ahead um and i think right now athletes are preparing for it to go ahead i think that's the right attitude i think that's all you can do right now is prepare that you will have an olympic games because that's what the athletes want you know it's it's the pinnacle of the sport it's something that they've they've been working for for their whole lives you know and now that you have another year to kind of go again so i think overall yeah i i'm pretty confident with the communication that's coming out from the olympic fed or the olympic International Olympic Council that will go ahead and it's just managing it and managing it now for the next kind of couple of uh, couple of months like obviously there's an awful lot of chat about um, you know vaccines and things like that and don't get me wrong everybody's on the same page as the most vulnerable in society uh, should be vaccinated first and frontline workers should be vaccinated first but you know let's see where we're at you know May time June time um, in terms of vaccinations going into an Olympic Games but um, there's a lot of management involved I think you know um, you know, they've released kind of roadmaps and plans about how they're going to deal with it. But uh, I think they are preparing themselves for an Olympic Games, which is great. Well, David, uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Hooked on Help podcast. You've been so good with your time, with your contribution. And thank you for sharing your story with us uh, and for your honesty. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I'm just going to ask you for one last piece of advice for any young athlete out there who may be struggling at the moment, dealing with very abnormal times. Their career has probably taken a bit of a blow over the last year. So have you any little tips, strategies that, you know, may help them deal with the current circumstances? Yeah, look, and I think, you know, there's so much that I'd love to share. But I think the simplest thing is just focus on the now, okay? Don't get too kind of bogged down on what things are going to be like in five, six months down, down the road. Or even flip back and go, oh, I wish it was back in 2019 when things were normal. Just focus on today. What can you do today? Because I think that's the, that's the key to it all. You know, if we can just look after ourselves in the present um, and take it one day at a time. And just the last thing as well, you know, always, always have a little micro goal. Okay. So, you know, we're talking Olympics, we're talking about things that are months down the line, but what are you going to do in the next couple of days? Give yourself something to aim for because a lot of people's hopes and dreams have been dashed, you know, like holidays and all the stuff that we look forward to, but bring it back, do something for you, you know, do something for you and work towards that. I think that's really, really important. So that was David Gillick, twice European indoor champion at 400 metres, speaking with Eric Donovan. And David's an intriguing guy, um, Eric, to be honest, like the kind of support and the care he still has for athletics ran through the conversation that you had there. You know, his feeling that there's a great next generation coming through of Irish athletes and he wants them to do extremely well along the way. And he also came across as a guy to me that seems quite settled and happy in himself now, probably a lot happier than he was 10 years ago, really. Yeah, definitely. You know, great chats with him. Uh, I really enjoyed that discussion. Um, He's such an interesting guy. He really is. And uh, a lot of things he spoke about there, huge, huge lessons for everybody. You know, um, you know, one thing that really jumps out at me was the, um, you know, he went searching the wrong areas, searching for happiness, you know, um, how we thought money was going to bring him happiness. You know, it's like putting the cart in front of the horse. 
you know, and even just something as simple as that, learning that, you know, that that's not meaningful, that's not purposeful, that's not going to bring me happiness. To be able to realize that and to adjust that and he tries to work in more meaningful, uh, he tries to take on more meaningful jobs now and stuff that brings a bit of purpose to his life. And uh, yeah, family man, um, but but highly highly uh, knowledgeable around the area of, of athletics. You can just hear him when he speaks about it, like the passion runs through and no surprise that RTE have uh, snapped him up, you know, because he, he, for the casual fan or any just sporting fan watching, you know, he, he gives um, brilliant insights and analysis and, uh, and great background information. Yeah. Uh, look, I think we're all guilty of that as well, Eric, that we decide that there are certain things that, can bring us happiness and bring us satisfaction. Uh, and I'm sure there's plenty of things that we all kind of chase in life, whether that's, you know, the job promotion that you might be going after, you might have your eye on a particular house or an amount that you want to have in your bank balance. But the reality is that whenever you meet any of those goals along the way, if there's something that you just want to meet because there's something you want to take off, you'll always find there's something else that you want after that. Like you can never have everything. Never, no, and you keep chasing, you know, because that's the thing, you know, with it when it comes when you when you do when you are kind of going down the road of material things to bring happiness, you know, it'll just be one thing after another. I I use this old uh, I heard this a guy saying this one time. Um uh, this is a person in recovery. He said, I used to pay a high price for low living, and now through my recovery. I'm paying a low price, a low price for high living. And, uh, and it just made so much sense. You know, it just made so much sense to me that the real things in life, the real meaningful and purposeful things in life for us are actually free. Well, next week on episode four, remember if you want to listen back to any of the previous podcasts, you can do so particularly on the Go Loud app or you can subscribe to us on any of your podcasting networks. Uh, This is a Go Loud original podcast, Hooked on Health with Eric Donovan, but you can listen back to previous conversations that we had with Mary Holgrain or with Ushie McConville going back to week number one of the podcast or if you're listening to us again, you want to listen back to David Gillick, that's probably the best place to do so. Give us a subscribe, maybe a like or a review. It can help the show a lot if you're enjoying uh, the conversations we've been having in recent weeks too. Next week, we're kind of pivoting off into a slightly different direction, Eric, in terms of our conversation. We're going to be joined by a guy called Rory O'Connor, but I would imagine most people probably know him better as Rory Stories. Yeah, Rory O'Connor could be anybody, could be the, the, the boy next door. But, you know, when it's Rory's stories, you know exactly who we're talking about. And uh, he's our guest for next week. And uh, I'm looking forward to to chatting with him. He's a brilliant story, fascinating story, you know, and how uh, how we how we developed and, and, and made Rory's stories into a phenomenon, really. And uh, he's over a million social media followers and he's uh, provided a lot of entertainment for people and gave them something to smile and cheer about during the the tough days of the pandemic. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to Rory. He's a massive platform. And what I really like about him is he uses that uh, platform to speak about some important issues that we face in this country and around the world, which is mental health, depression, anxiety, etc. He speaks about that uh, uh, so well. And I'm, I'm glad, glad to hear and glad to know that he does that. Well, episode four of the Hooked on Health podcast is going to be Eric Donovan sitting down with Rory's stories. We hope that you can join us again next week. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app.